Good morning. Welcome to The Skinny. Hi, I'm Mitch Perry, reporter of the Florida Phoenix and the co-host of The Skinny. Heard every 40, Friday morning at this time. I'm joined again by my colleagues, creative loafing editor-in-chief, Ray Roa. Hello. And, uh, of course, Ben Montgomery from Axios joining us after a few weeks off. Welcome, Welcome back. back. Welcome back to Ben. That was me. Thanks. Uh, thanks, Ben. Good to see you. Thank see you, all of you. And thank you for tuning in right now. So we're going to talk about the Tampa City elections, uh, municipal elections later in the program, as well as some, maybe some other things developing in Tallahassee the first week of the session. Uh, is underway. And by the way, I should say this will be my last show in person for a few weeks. I'm going up to Tallahassee for several weeks because that's what my bread and butter is, is covering the legislature for the Florida Phoenix. Uh, you'll be in the capable hands of my colleagues here. But first, we're going to talk about local and state education. And for the first part of the program with Jessica Vaughn from the Hillsborough County School District. Jessica was elected in 2020. Uh, and uh, it's great to see you here, Jessica. Good morning. Good morning. What an honor to be back. Thanks for having me. All right. Thanks so much for having you coming in and, and we, us having you here. So, um, okay, it was a couple of things. There's so many things to talk to you about, but, um, and we'll get to this thing in a minute, but I just want to say that Governor Ron DeSantis, folks might remember a year ago, roughly, he announced he was endorsing school board candidates for the election in 2022. And that had never been done, most media people say, in history ever, afford a governor doing that. And ultimately, uh, the governor and supporters at Moms for Liberty took credit for flipping 29 school board seats in 2022. We bring this up now because the governor's really leaning into it now. A couple weeks ago at a meeting attended by the governor, education commissioner, Manny Diaz, and local Republican leaders and Moms for Liberty members, the governor announced a list of 14 school board members that he's identified for removal and that includes five in our listening area, including two here in Hillsborough County, including you, Jessica Vaughn. So we're going to get to that in a minute. But <laughs> we want to talk. I want to talk first about locally here. What's going on in Hillsborough County? So because um, we've got this whole issue about school boundary changes, which mm -hmm. are really dominating all discussion about Hillsborough County schools for, you know, it's a very serious thing. This is a plan from Superintendent Addison Davis that he announced last fall that is needed because there's some schools that are overcrowded and others that aren't full enough. Uh, Davis said at the time that there were 24% of the schools in Hillsborough County were overcrowded and 44% were under-enrolled. And so this originalist plan would have 24,000 students changing schools. That's a lot of disruption here. And the board, it seems like it's been an agonizing problem for you guys to deal with this. Um, and there's been complaints from all over the place, uh, a rush process. And you guys have been complained about this, poor communications, only a modest savings in closing, closing schools. So Jessica Vaughn, talk to us. You guys, I think, met again yesterday about this. Where are we at with this plan right now? Oh, goodness. Um, well, we have not come to consensus. We had a robust conversation yesterday um, where we really identified, do we want to start closing schools or do we want to reinvent schools and start looking at the communities to be reflective and put programs in that will attract people back to our schools? To do that, you know, we have to have honest conversations about how our communities are changing. I brought up gentrification, which is something we haven't talked about before. So we did identify as a board some things that we absolutely want to focus on and some things that we want to move forward on, but we did not come to consensus about boundaries. So the superintendent said that he was going to take the information from the workshop and give us another plan, which would be plan five, kind of 5.5, .5, um, and then just push it forward for a vote because he's worked you know, a lot and he feels like he's brought forward the best plan that reflects as much as the community as he can put in it. Um, and so he's intending to do that mid to late April. There has to be two readings of it. So we're still kind of in negotiations to see what that's going to look like. What are the main points of tension with this? 
Oh, goodness. There's so many, but I would say one about making sure that we're keeping communities together. The district that would be hit the hardest is District 5, which is our marginalized, historically black district. And again, you know, that's where gentrification really comes into the conversation because our neighborhoods are changing due to affordable housing crisis and everything changing. So a lot of um, our community is concerned that our most marginalized district is the one where we're going to be closing schools and students are going to have to go further. Um, So a lot of pushback has been about that. Um, In general, again, my concern is we really haven't seen the savings that would justify this amount of transition and how many families will be uprooted. And since we do um, put choice at the front of our community, a lot of um, communities where we're going to make these boundary changes, they're just going to choice out of of where we reassign them. Mm -hmm. So it might not really be effective. Um, So, you know, it's complicated because really this comes from the fact that we're being systemically underfunded intentionally to privatize education and we're having to make really hard decisions um, and there's a lot of moving pieces. So I think ultimately the board just wanted to make sure that we're having a conversation holistically and talking about everything before we jump into making changes. Uh, you know, what's John Hill, I think it was John Hill of the Tampa Bay Times wrote this editorial a couple days ago. Jessica, I don't know if you saw that. And again, we're speaking with Jessica Vaughn from the Hillsborough County School Board. Um, and he wrote about, I'm just going to quote a couple sentences here. He says, we understand the anxiety that thousands of families may face with any large reassignment of students. But that's reality for a district with too much classroom space and that faces continued pressures on finances and enrollment that are only expected to worsen. Uh, He writes one third of Hillsborough schools, 83 in all, operate or below 70 percent. Hillsborough has fewer students today in traditional public schools than it did in 2018, thanks to charters. Um, So his Davis's plan has been, uh, he says, a modest plan here, close five schools, four that operate at half capacity, and together with other student reassignments, the district could save about $14 million annually. Now, is that what you understand, and is that enough or not enough. Talk to us about that. So, um, I mean, $14 million is valuable, um, but when we're looking at like teacher salaries and steps every year, that covers one step. Um, and so when we talk about money, we have to talk about reoccurring or a one-time fee because that really decides, you know, whether or not we can talk about teacher or employee salaries. However, there's been a lot of question about the finances because one, a lot of it is stemming from transportation and then we're looking at, okay, are we saving on transportation but putting students in dangerous situations where they're going to have to walk further? We all know that Hillsborough County and Tampa is one of the highest pedestrian kill areas of the, you know, of the entire country. So, you know, the decisions that we're making, are they the best for our students? And then it's really... um, Um, about employee salaries, right? We're closing down these schools, so we're going to recoup the money in salaries. However, the superintendent has guaranteed that no one's going to lose a job, right? We're just going to shift those employees to different schools where there are different needs. So I haven't really gotten an answer of how we're going to be saving all this money annually reoccurring when we're not really cutting those salaries. We're just shifting them somewhere else because really that means it's coming out of our vacancies budget. So again, it's all very complicated and we haven't really had a chance to dive in deep about the finances at first. It wasn't even directed from our CFO. It was coming from one department and our CFO hadn't even really signed off on the financials. So that's been some of the concerns is if we're going to make these decisions that impact and, um, you know, affect so many families, I, I personally need to make sure that we're making them for the right reasons with sound decisions and sound data. And there's been a lot of questions around that. 
Let's, let's move on to some of the other topics we have here. Let's talk about Tallahassee because there's a lot of new proposals and other things that are going on right now. And again, we're talking with Jessica Vaughn, and she'll be here to the bottom of the hour if you want to call in and talk to her about all these issues. 813-239-9663. So public schools, um, some say, are at serious risk. Now, you talked about how Tallahassee's been defunding public schools for a while, and it has. It, it's gone back, I don't know, decades, some would say. For sure. But um, there is a new plan, House Bill 1 and Senate Bill 202, with, mm-hmm. which would divert public money for unchecked education vouchers that some, I think the Florida Policy Institute has said it could cost up to $4 billion in the first year alone. Uh, Hillsborough County schools, it's been estimated, could lose up to $300 million and Pinellas, close to $200 million. That's just the start. Um, the school voucher bill, which critics say would defund public schools to a dangerous extent, would make vouchers available uh, worth $8,200 a year to K through 12 students, almost everybody. And we should say um, that DeSantis, Governor DeSantis, is not all in on this from what we understand so far. So this is not by any means a done deal. But talk about that and your concerns about that. Absolutely. Um, That will be a devastating blow to traditional public education here um, in in Florida. And as you mentioned, it's been decades that it's been in the work to privatize education, starting with No Child Left Behind. But this is one of the more aggressive ones, and it will allow anyone who identifies as an education, whether it's private school charter or even homeschools, to take advantage and take the funds that would normally go to our traditional public schools. And these are public dollars that we're talking about. And so if you're someone who's very adamant about keeping public dollars in public institutions so there's accountability just by that very nature you should oppose this bill but again it could go to homeschool parents and if you've been paying attention to the news in Ohio Vice just you know uncovered that there was a whole homeschool co-op of 2,500 students that were basically training their kids to be Nazis like the the entire curriculum was based around Hitler and, and training Nazis and so there's almost no accountability with these dollars and as we look at public schools having more accountability than ever. I mean, we're going to talk about the whole books and teachers and all of that going forward. The fact that they're trying to take our our tax dollars and then give it to homeschools or charter schools where there's less accountability is very confusing in the messaging of, of education. And again, it's it's just another um, part of privatizing education. You know, all these bills that are coming out are intentionally causing chaos in our schools. There are other bills that are intentionally um, setting our schools up to fail so that when they privatize education, nobody's that surprised, right? We've expanded all these voucher systems. We've started putting money toward our public dollars into private funds, and then we've created complete chaos in traditional public schools. So to me, when you look at it, it's just a very obvious plan to privatize education, and it's extremely dangerous. Who wins in that in that respect? I mean, when it comes, I understand the, sure. the overriding fear, but mm-hmm. who would be organizing this? So if you look at a lot of our legislators, they have private stock in a lot of the charter schools or, you know, they have um, a financial interest in this, um, as well as, you know, there are communities that would like to take advantage of this. I mean, I have friends who are homeschool parents and would like, um, you know, to be able to to take advantage of being able to fund their education. So, it, you know, it's the narrative, it's, it's school choice, it's freedom. Florida is the, you know, the most free when it comes to school choice. But ultimately, you know, a lot of the people who are making decisions will financially benefit from this. And you talked about um, accountability. What has the conversation been like internally for you as far as um, all of these different schools as they start to branch out and if they can even keep up or will be subject to sunshine sunshine laws? Like it's, it's hard to keep public records 
Um, and how are these schools going to be able to keep those up and so that folks like Mitch, Ben, and myself can can find these records and not put a records request in them and be like, oh, we can't find it, oh well. For charter schools and privatization? Yeah, all, all of it, all of it. Is anybody talking about whether or not these schools can, can keep up with those, rec- those requirements? No, actually, we haven't talked about that. I mean, we definitely talk about making sure that we have accountability in charter schools and what that looks like and having the same accountability. Um, you know, and unfortunately, we get a lot of complaints from parents who have switched to charter schools that have serious concerns and we can't help them, you know, because they're privatized and there's a private board. So it's frustrating for us because we can't help a lot of our students once they're out of the traditional public education. But absolutely, there's going to be less accountability. Unfortunately, what generally happens is that the state also makes mandates that we do a lot of the administration for the charter schools and that's an unfunded mandate so we end up paying for it so usually if we're looking for that type of accountability or administration the traditional public schools Hillsborough County will, will be responsible for that but we won't get any funding from the state so it just ends up costing us more. So we're going to talk in a minute about this whole book ban situation and Governor DeSantis was in Tampa two days ago to talk about what he called the book ban hoax but we've got a couple people who are on the line right now so let's go to them let's go to uh, Neil calling in from Tampa. Hi, you're on the air. Yes, thank you. Can you hear me? Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Okay, good. I volunteered uh, and for a year um, mentored a, a student at um, one of our big high schools. And what I found was that um, and um, that our teachers, the parents, the students, everyone in the system really doesn't understand the cost of education class by class. So what I recommended was they do a beta program where the students, the teachers, the principal, the parents really understand the course of each um, class in a high school. And that to me would create um, a comparison between our schools or public schools and private schools. In other words, it's a money game, but to understand the money game is to understand uh, the cost. If you don't understand the cost of things, you don't know what the value is. So that was my point. And it okay. Got Don't we sort of now already assign a per student cost, right? It doesn't have per head. Rather we, than per thank you, classroom. Thank you, Neil. We do. Um, and that's a, that's a valid point. And we've had questions about, okay, well, if you're saying you're being underfunded and the state allots you this, come up with a comparison of what it really costs and how you're being underfunded. Um, the problem is, is every student is different, right? So if you have ESE's needs, if you have different transportation needs because you're going to a magnet school, um, th- those are like our exceptional students who either have physical disabilities or they have, you know, some other mental challenges where we have to provide extra support or or even gifted um, AGP falls under our ESE. It's all one. Um, so it's hard to basically say what one student costs because every student has different needs. Um, but we are, I mean, it, it's you can look it up anywhere. It goes from being 46th to 48th right. in the funding nationally of what we put towards education and we put towards our students. So, I mean, regardless of whether, you know, we can come up with an exact number of what classes cost, we prioritize financially education almost last in our country, and that speaks for itself. Okay, let's go to Simon in Lakeland. Simon, you're on the air. Hi, thanks for taking my call. I want to speak a little bit about accountability. In Hillsborough, there's roughly 218,000 students 
And the cost to educate each student roughly is about $8,000 per year per student. The taxpayers are paying $1.7 billion a year for that one class. If you take K through 12, the city, uh, the taxpayers are going to pay about $21 billion to educate that group of kids from K to 12, assuming you still have that sample size. The reason I bring that up is for $21 billion, roughly 60% of the kids graduating high school have to take at least one or two remedial courses in college or universities because they're ill-prepared for college or universities. The Center for American Progress states that the remedial education costs students $1.3 billion in additional... Okay, Simon, so let's bring this in for Landy, so to speak. So we're, we're, are you saying the taxpayers are getting ripped off here? What's, what, what do you, what's your point uh, here? She, yeah, she continues to say that the educators need more money. I'm saying they're not doing their job in educating, reading, writing, and arithmetic. And so many social issues have come into the disciplinary action of educating kids rather than educating kids. Okay. All right. Thank you. Um, for, Jessica, I guess the thing is like the dollar figures, I don't know if that's accurate at yeah, all. There's a lot of math there that <laughs> needs to be checked. But thank you for the time call, Simon. Um, but what do you, but yeah, I mean, Hillsborough is not unique by the way, in terms of like, I don't know if that again, that percentage is accurate in terms of people who have to go for remedial classes. I mean, I've, I read this in New York, uh, there's an issue with that as well. Um, uh, but this is what you will hear from critics of public education. There is, the, they always want more money and we're not getting a good result out of it, you know? For yeah. sure. I mean, I, I don't remember mentioning that the teachers need more money, but they absolutely do. So thank you for segueing into that. Um, however, um, when we talk about taxes, first of all, the state passed something where th there's only so many taxes we can recoup. And there's a whole formula where basically they take all of the entire counties and there's a cap. And if we've reached it, they refund taxes. So it's not even like we can just use taxes as a way of, of, of increasing our revenue. However, absolutely in Hillsborough County, we have an issue when it comes to reading readiness and we always have and one of those reasons is we're a huge urban district yeah. i mean we're one of the seventh largest districts in the entire nation um and and we're one that has a lot of title one and a lot of poverty and a lot of generational trauma and so when you have students who are coming into our system with you know already behind when we're talking about systemic poverty when you're talking about accessibility to literature and reading readiness and the support at home those are all obstacles that we have to overcome when we're talking about it and if we're not addressing that early and that's why if you look at the workshop yesterday a lot of conversation was around early literacy and reading readiness it's too late by the time they get to third and fourth grade which by the way per the state is when we identify them as third grade that's when we're supposed to start to fail students for not being able to read and if you're a third grade teacher especially one that has 20 to 22 kids in your classroom because that's class size amendment which is a whole other conversation um, you don't have the time to teach a student to read right I mean you don't have the bandwidth to be able to do that so 
if we're talking about what we need to do in order to make sure that our students are in remediation classes is we need to address reading early and talk about the reading crisis that we have systemically because of the fact that we're a large urban district and what we can do to make sure that our kids come in ready to read. Okay, again, if you're tuning in right now, you're listening to The Skinny here on WMNF. It's 1125 in the AM. I'm Mitch Perry along with Ben Montgomery, Ray Roa, and our guest is Hillsborough County School Board member Jessica Vaughn. We've got around for maybe about 10 minutes or so. We've got a couple issues we've got to get to, including the fact that DeSantis is targeting you specifically for 2024. <laughs> but let's talk about DeSantis. Uh, he was in Tampa, as I mentioned, uh, two days ago for a big press conference at the Hillsborough County State Attorney's Office, uh, which was an interesting locale. We were trying to figure out, like, why are we here for this? What's going on? And then what made it even more interesting, intriguing, weird, was they announced, a spokesperson said, there's going to be uh, some sexually explicit material being shown up on a video screen here. So uh, you got any little kitties taking out the room here for the next few minutes? And this was all, um, the, the people were seeing the, some media coverage of, the, of this um, the book, they called it the book ban hoax that Governor did. And he was talking specifically about the concerns about what the, his administration's been doing with these AP African-American studies courses, which we've heard about, of course, and also uh, the book banning, okay? And so he has a sheet here that, that was distributed to the media, and there's books. And let's talk about this, Jessica. Um, and I just saw this in the news yesterday. So every county, every school district is dealing with this in their own way. In Martin County, which is in southeast Florida, they're taking this thing really seriously. They have removed more than 80 book titles for sexual or racial content. Uh, and so when I saw that yesterday, I reached out to um, your school district PO, PIO uh, person to say, hey, what's the deal there in Hillsborough? And she said basically, um, no, there are only uh, two books that are actually uh, they're looking at right now. Uh, one of them is called This Book is Gay, uh, which actually attracted the attention of Florida House Speaker Paul Renner. Uh, this book centers around a, a nonfiction book in the Pierce Media, Middle School Media Center about the topics of interest to young people. Wait, wait no, I'm sorry, I'm reading something else there. Um, it was challenged, but no. So that was a book that they, in this video they showed um, several books here that were kind of shocking. I'd almost dare say it was really whoa. Is this being, is this in the libraries here? When is this book is gay? A book containing instructions on the quote unquote ins and outs of gay sex. Um, let's start with there with that one. That was you're familiar <laughs> with that. <laughs> I, I'm somewhat familiar. We actually just got a copy of the book yesterday at the workshop because it is coming before the board. So I plan yeah. to read that in the next coming weeks to be prepared. But I am, I am. So there's only there's only a couple of books in your guys in your district's case that yeah. have come to that first issue because um, your colleague Dr. Stacy Hahn was there. She was saying we've got an issue with some of these things. There was a Moms for Liberty person from Hillsborough who I'd never heard before who She's also come spoke. to every meeting yeah. for two years. Yeah, <laughs> and she says she's getting shut down. And, and I guess she I think has never gotten shut down. They mentioned a couple other books here. Uh, one book called Flamer, a graphic book about young boys performing sexual acts at a summer camp. And they show these pretty quickly. Um, they said certain districts, they mentioned Broward, uh, some of these books are Hillsborough was mentioned, a couple. Uh, so it was interesting to see the governor push back. And I think we've got a, a call uh, somebody who was taught once to like that press conference. Uh, we got Chris in Clearwater. Chris, here on the air. Thanks, Mitch, for talking about that. Yeah, the um, local news footage did not have it, of course. So if folks want to watch it, they can go to the Facebook page for Governor Ron DeSantis to see that full video of the graphic, pornographic uh, book presentation at the beginning. Uh, I wasn't aware of so many, just a few of them. So uh, I just encourage folks to go through and uh, and see that there it is indeed an issue that needs to be addressed. And um, he did not get into some uh, as much as I would have liked to. Uh, from my research on the African-American studies, uh, allegedly being banned by him. It was actually 
uh, due to the Stop Woke Act, the Florida Department of Education enforced that. So I would say address the legislature. Don't get, uh, you know, at the at the expense Wait, of. Sir, to, to butt in here, are you not? Are you saying DeSantis doesn't have that intention of sort of putting a chilling effect on on teachers in terms of what they, uh, in terms of what they do and and don't make available to their children? In terms of the objections to the Stop Woke Act. Uh, which the Department of Education uh, posted a single-page summary of objections to the college boards, which is a, you know, their trademark, the African-American AP is a trademark study being rejected. And, of course, they introduced a new one February 1st, so we'll see if that's accepted. I haven't found any news if that's accepted. I keep checking. I keep trying to keep, I've been keeping updated on this. But the point is that, this was a CRT uh, issue with communism. Uh, Angela Davis, Edward, Eduardo Bonilla Silva, who writes that if you're in a uh, society where there's institutional racism, then you cannot help but be racist. So that forces us to not be colorblind. And, and things like that, just if you look, check it out with the 82-page syllabus uh, from the original rejected curriculum, you can see. And, and this was a program that was slated for uh, just 60 schools across the country. So Florida would have gotten about one or two, maybe three. And uh, so it was not being, it was not a banning of any, there's no existing course. You you guys say anything about this at all, Jessica? I mean, I don't don't really understand what the question is. Um, (laughs) uh, As far as what um, our process is, right? So Hillsborough has foreseen this coming and we've worked very hard to build in a fair and equitable process. And originally what happens is is if there's a book in a school that someone is concerned about, they can challenge that book through the district. At that time, we have a committee who has decided from the media specialists the previous summer who reads the book, who talks about it collectively, understands whether it's right for the community because every community has different needs, different students, and then they vote whether they want to keep the book in the school. From there, it goes to, if if it's still being challenged, it goes to a district committee. They go through the entire same process. They read the book, they talk about it, they talk about the value of it within the school district, and then from there, it goes to the school board to vote on it. So we have not banned any books at this point. We do have our first challenge coming up, and we can talk about that more. In regards to CRT, that's a that's a high-level college course that we have not taught in our schools and have not and didn't plan on teaching, so I would appreciate people using the correct vernacular. Um, right. When you talk about a chilling effect and what it looks like and whether the WOKE Act is having an effect on just talking about equity in our schools, we have already had to re-talk about our equity award-winning equity policy at a workshop because the state has said that language like institutional racism is problematic, and that doesn't even violate the woke act which meant what you mentioned is supposed to be aimed at college universities students and also yeah. what we teach our faculty so the fact that they've identified that just a board policy that talks about equity as a priority within our school and says that it's problematic and asks for us to remove it without giving any clarity of how it violates a statue shows right there that there's so much vagueness in this that it is yeah. intentionally being used to to make people afraid to teach about racism, to talk about equality, and to make sure that we have books that provide 
material that our students are engaged and interested in reading in our schools. And that vagueness, we, we could talk about it. Ben brought it up in the beginning of the show. These things are so vague, and I'm just going to go ahead and Thank say you, sometimes they feel theatrical in the way that they're presented, that all of a sudden, for the first time, as, as Ben kind of pointed out before we came on air, DeSantis is having to play defense because these things are so vague and so performative in a way. And so, and we can go down a wormhole. Well, this is, this is, I'm not surprised. Are you surprised that some, that like Martin County has pulled 83 books? That, that, that Absolutely yeah. not. Because this entire government, the, the way that our state legislator and our um, governor is ruling is with retribution, right? If you don't do what I say, if you're not doing exactly, you know, what we think is right, we're going to put you on a hit list. We're going to send you a letter. We're going to remove you from office. Well, so everybody's afraid. Let's talk about that hit list, so to speak. Uh, again, we mentioned this at the top of the program target here. List. There, it's target list, right? There's a five in our area. There's uh, Tom Edwards in Sarasota County. Uh, Laura Hind and Eileen Long in Pinellas County have been listed here or targeted, if you will. And of course, uh, Nadia Combs and yourself, Jessica Vaughn. So what did you think when you heard about this? I thought it was ridiculous. I wasn't surprised. Honestly, if I hadn't been on it, I would have been offended. And to me, it's a badge of honor, which I've been quoted as saying. However, it's not reflective of my community. And that's what's concerning me. The governor is working with Moms of Liberty, which is a very extreme, small group of educational advocate that have a certain agenda. And if those are the They're people... They're a powerful group, though. Haven't, I mean, they've really come a long way in their... Well, they have powerful system. funders, Republican funding mm -hmm. that allows them to have a, a, a reach that a lot of other grassroots organizations don't. However, that's not reflective of, of my community. If you go into my community, my district, most people support what I'm doing. I even have a, I'm a Democrat. I have a very strong Republican following. Would you like to be, um, by the way, uh, there's partisan elections have been discussed. Yeah. There's a bill moving through the state legislature. Right. What, what's your take on that? I'm, I don't care. It doesn't really matter to me, but I think that the whole point of education being nonpartisan should be a focus that we shouldn't be making it a partisan issue. And that's one of the reasons that I have a huge Republican the Republican following is because Republicans care about traditional public education. I mean, ultimately, people want the same things when they talk about education. They want a safe environment with qualified educators where they can send their student, where they are learning. And so the fact that everything that's coming out from the state is divisive or inflammatory just to get people upset and, and, and really not paying attention to what's happening when we're talking about defunding and the privatization. I mean, all this culture war stuff, all of this stuff about books, there are so few books. And honestly, kids aren't reading enough as it is and the people in my district they don't care about these books what they care about is that they're qualified teachers in their classroom that their kids aren't overcrowded that their classrooms are safe and a school shooter is not going to come in that the buses are on time to pick up their students like these are the things people care about in education and so the fact that there's this very small group of extremists that are narrating and making hit lists about good quality school board members that are fighting for education is problematic on so many different Levels. Are you going to run for re-election next year? <laughs> I was not planning on running for re-election. Um, however, the more that I get kind of targeted and extreme, you know, pointed out that I should be taken out, the more it makes me want to run just to prove like, hey, look, my community supports what I'm doing. Um, but that's still a year and a half away. So I can't really say. Yeah. Um, and how much do school board me members make? 
About the same as a first-year teacher, $45,000 a year or so. Um, There's been attempts to try to reduce that Mm -hmm. in previous elections, not this session. Uh, A couple things. I think we've got a couple more calls. Jessica, Mm -hmm. then we'll let you go here. Um, Again, Jessica Vaughn, one of the 14 school board members in the state of Florida targeted by Governor Ron DeSantis last month for next year's election. Jessica, you just heard say she wasn't even thinking about running. Maybe she does, maybe she doesn't. It's a long time away. Uh, But yeah, let's quickly go to a couple calls, and then we'll move on and talk about the elections here in Tampa. Uh, Christina's been waiting patiently here. Hi, Christina. Hi. Um, great. I, so I am just going to backtrack for a moment, and uh, I want to comment on a comment that one of the former callers made. He said that teachers aren't doing their job. Um, and I'm not going to try to guess what his political standing is. That's not important. But unfortunately, there has been this consistent attack on teachers mm-hmm. for, for well over a decade, well over a decade here in Florida. And and if 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 the general public would understand what goes on in the classroom, and and listen, I'm not saying that there aren't some bad apples out there. Of course there are. But I've worked in three counties over the course of my 11-year history working in the public school system in Florida, and 98% of the teachers I have met are all dealing with, with the same problem. I myself, I was a theater and film teacher full time. Um, but, but I can tell you, I know for sure the overcrowding of the classrooms affects not just the special teachers, but the academics, the math, the science, the reading. So, um, you know, they're also sometimes teachers aren't given support from the administration when there's a behavioral issue and, and, and the teacher wants so desperately to help that child who's struggling with behavior and it's affecting the entire class and the support is not there for the teacher and the child. There are a myriad of things go on that make a teacher's life very hard and right. many teachers come home at the end of the day just physically and mentally exhausted and end up getting sick so uh as far as our governor you know he's been transparent that his goal is to privatize this state and what do you do when you want an empire to fall you just kind of let it fall on its own right you you, you withdraw money um so again this goes back to teachers need that support if we had more support you would see better test grades. You would see better reading scores. And on that note, I also want to just finish by saying, you know, as far as the book banning that's going on, um, and I, I don't, I didn't get to hear everything that Jessica said, but I, I thought she said they haven't banned any books yet, but it looks like, you know, it might be on its way. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I just want to say, you know, as a, as a theater teacher, you know, this whole thing with CRT and what have you, what are they going to do with plays like A Raisin in the Sun by the late, great Miss Lorraine Hansberry? I directed that production in several schools, and the students and I would sit down and dissect the plot and talk about socially and politically what was going on it'd, it'd be in fascinating Chicago. To see, in it'd be fascinating to see what performances schools are doing next year across the state versus what they did Greece. You know, in years past. Yeah, right. Um, thank thank you, Christina. Great, that's a great call. I, I'm reminded of this every year, what Christina said, when I do uh, the, the most the most exhausting day of my year is Great American Teacher. And thank you to the teachers. You What you do is is difficult. And our last call, and then we're going to let Jessica go here. we got John I'd, from Port I'd Richie. actually like oh, to sorry. respond 
down to that at one point. First of all, thank you for being an educator. Um, I'm a certified teacher, and you're right. It's one of the most rewarding and exhausting jobs. Um, Secondly, you know, if we villainize teachers, right, it makes it easier for parents to worry about their parental rights, which is the guys that we're using to kind of expand the fascism and concern with education. Um, Our teachers are absolutely amazing. Like like you said, you go in for great American teaching. I'm in my schools all the time. They are some of the most hardworking, dedicated people. Um, to, so to see them kind of on the front lines of this is even more frustrating. But absolutely, um, a lot of the challenges that we have are from systemic problems and not from a lack of the hard work and dedication from our teachers. So I just wanted to address that. Sure, Thank th- you. And John, you're on the line here. Hey, yeah, thanks. I was waiting for your guest to speak. Sure. Two two things. One about the education, when you compare the students coming out of the public school versus the private school and whether or not they need remedial education or anything, there's really no apples-to-apples comparison there because, first of all, there's no transparency on the the private part. I'd like to see what what they're, when they come out, what are their remedial schools, our schools are, or or how many of those people are getting remediation. Mm -hmm. But also there's no transparency on, on, um, uh, I can't think what I was thinking about. But anyways, the other thing too is they don't have to, oh, there's no transparency on their progress, how well the students are doing. Like the public schools get graded, you know, on that A system. Private schools, they don't do that. So first thing I would like to see is a bill pass that says that, any money that goes to a private school, they have to go through the same transparency process, same testing process as a public school. And going back to the private school versus the public, they don't have to take every student. So they kind of have, I think they have an unfair advantage because they can cherry pick the students they want. They don't have to serve the entire community. Uh, you know, they, they don't have to take ESE students or kids with, with behavioral problems or any of that stuff. And going back to the funding, the private school does not have to pay for transportation, which is a huge budget on the public schools. Um, Biggest unfunded yeah, mandate we have. And what part of, and what part well, of the budget in Hillsborough County is transportation? Yeah, have to do oversight too, which is crazy. But the other thing too, yeah. I was thinking is that really bothers me that I'm surprised a lot of the, you know, conservatives aren't up in arms about is why are, why is my public dollars going to build private schools that if they go under, they get to keep those assets. That just boggles my brain that, you know. All right. Thank you, John. Thank you, John. We got to move on here. Um, So we don't, I don't have a direct like percentage, but transportation is one of our biggest unfunded mandates. Um, And it depends, you know, the state legislation says that within a two mile radius, we don't have to provide busing. So that's even another concern. However, the other point that we're not really talking about is with private schools, you have parents who are more engaged and also wealthier, right? So they're able to provide more access for their students, whether it's just experiences or access to literature. So, you know, again, when we talk about education, we can't discount socioeconomics that play into it. We can't talk. We can't discount just access to to things that to help you educationally, or just the ability for parents to be engaged. If you have communities where, because of you know unfair um, uh, policing, where we have half of our men locked up and there are no role models, and you have you know little you know parents who are working two or three jobs just to put ends meet on the table, they're not going to be able to support, unfortunately, or they have multiple children that education the same way as private parents do. So there are so many inequities that we have to talk about, which might be called CRT under, you know, our government, our governor now, that really, if we're talking about education and the best of our students, we have to be honest about. 
All right, that's the voice of Jessica Vaughn, who's in studio today. And we thank you, Jessica, for coming in today and talking to us Thanks. about all these different issues that are going on. A lot going on with you, and uh, we wish you the best of luck. Uh, and, uh, you know, it, it, <laughs> all, all, Godspeed with you, and absolutely. <laughs> and we'll be excited to hear if you uh, decide to run again. Uh, thank you. Thank you for everything. Thank you for giving a voice to education. I always say that, you know, access to education is the biggest equalizer in our society. And we're all one Hillsborough, we're one community, and we have to make sure we're advocating for all of our kids to have access to that. So thank you for giving me this opportunity. All right, Jessica Vaughn, thank you, Jessica. Now we're going to transition here. It's 11.44 in the morning here. We've got about 15 minutes left to go here on the skinny. Uh, let's talk about the election. Yeah. You know, we really got into this, of course, the last few weeks. Uh, we've had two debates on the last two weeks. District uh, 3, of course, was last week, right? We didn't have Janet Cruz, but we had the other four candidates on. Uh, and then, of course, uh, we had the Blake Casper, Bill Carlson debate. Um, let's start with that one, guys. That was, uh, that's, the, you know, the, maybe the, one of the hot, well, those two of the hottest races going on. Uh, Bill Castor blasted away uh, Blake Casper, won by 20 points. Uh, Jane Castor last Friday, very late in the process, came out and endorsed the Republican Blake Casper. Nonpartisan election, we should say, but everybody cares about the partisanship here. Uh, and, uh, you know, that was part of the mayor. She came out, she endorsed Candidate, she enjoys Joe Citro, who lost in District. Uh, what is that? District One. It didn't even yeah. make a runoff, so that one's going to runoff, and her endorsement did not make it. it she was did, not enough. Uh, Orlando Gooch. She got. You know, Orlando lost a very close election in District Five. Was it? Um, he lost to Gwen Henderson uh, by. Basically, what seventy-five a votes. Yeah, incredible. So, and then there was the four. There was four charter amendments. Three of them, which the governor, excuse me, the mayor wanted to veto. Uh, three of them were approved. Uh, they're going to be happening now. One did not happen. So we've got that. Let's, so let's begin with the. So. I'm already looking ahead, of course, is what political animals do to 2027 now. I think Bill Carlson is one of the people is going to be talked about for a potential mayoral candidacy in 2027. Some people thought, you know, he might have been a guy to challenge Jane Castor this year. Jane Castor, um, you know, nobody would have challenged her. The other person I was thinking, hearing about back last year was Ruben Butch Delgado. He, of course, was the interim police chief uh, in Tampa, and uh, he was uh, – passed over by Mary O'Connor, and we all know how that worked out not so well. Uh, and I think about Delgado, which is interesting, uh, the Hispanic community, which is very big in Hillsborough County. I don't know if the numbers are in Tampa, but in Hillsborough, 30% of the county is, is, is Hispanic. And politically, we've never seen, because I've really followed this over the last two decades, you know, the, the community really fight for somebody. They kind of did for a while there. They kind of wanted to put their, their voice down for Delgado. Anyway, that didn't happen. He did not become police chief. He left the force. There was some talk about him maybe pursuing a, a chance to run. He'd be an, an underdog, as would Carlson. Did he, he, did he endorse in any races? No, he, I don't think he got involved in this at all politically. But the point being is that, you know, some people are saying, okay, Jane Castor, you know, who was basically unopposed except for writing candidate, somehow really, it's a weird thing because she, you know, won re-election with 80% of the vote, which is, sounds great, but um, I don't I know. Mean, Okay, so 80% of the vote, um, let's keep in mind here, the turnout was abysmal um, in this in this uh, election. I'll, I'll pull How up the number. How bad was it? <laughs> I have the number here. Mitch, do you know it off the top of your head? Uh, um, it, it's pretty bad. It was it was like 13 point something percent. Well, and I always say, why do we have these elections in March? I mean, I, <clears throat> nobody's prepared to, well, to vote. Well, that, that's another thing uh, yeah. we can talk about here. So, so Castor, um, on Tuesday, we found earned 80% of the vote. Some people argue it was less because some people left that part completely blank. But it's remarkable because... 
Bob Buckhorn uh, ran against only a right end. That was A. Vasquez in 2015. Right, 2015. He got 96% yeah, of the vote. That. And then you mentioned the, the charter amendments. And, and you know, in the run-up to this election, we really didn't it, – it was it was becoming nauseating to make this about a check on the mayor and, and, and things like that in some ways. But actually, as the dust kind of settles around this first round – you do kind of realize that there, this is an indictment on on yeah, on her and, and a again, statement on on the, how and, and the city I, feels. I said this to you guys back in December when we first assembled to get the show together. Tampa is very weird politically, okay, in terms of like compared to say St. Petersburg, in terms of uh, challenge having a mayor reelection. I mean, Dick, Tampa's had Dick Greco at five different terms. Uh, people, there's some people who want Bob Buckhorn to come back to run for mayor. Uh, that was my like, favorite rumor of the cycle, by the way. <laughs> well, but in St. Petersburg, for example, Rick Kreisman, who was seemed like a very you know relatively popular mayor, was seriously challenged by Rick Baker four years ago, won by just two points. Uh, Bill Foster, after one term in 20, uh, was it 2013, lost by 12 points to Rick Kreisman. There's a much healthier level of challengers, you know, mayors being challenged in St. Pete than across the Bay here in Tampa. And it's not, it's not unique to Jane Castor. Again, I, I mentioned these Delgado, I mentioned, um, Carlson, because, look, I think part of the issue why the city and some people who uh, don't like Bill Carlson have been really aggressive in the media and trying to paint him in a really dark fashion is because, you know, he's considered a threat uh, to the mayor. In the media and in people's mailboxes. Yeah, yeah. So, okay, so we'll look at this. We got the we got the Janet Cruz Lynn Hertak now, which is going to be a, a barn burner, uh, April twenty fifth. In the and of course, surprising to me, I don't know if you guys think that Lynn Hertak, not that she made the runoff. I really did think that was going to happen between her and Janet Cruz, but that Lynn Hertak actually got more votes. She got significantly more votes, I think, as the night went on. Why does that surprise you? Yeah, why does well, that surprise you? Well, because Janet Cruz has been on the ballot at least four f- times in the last decade. Lynn had never, has never been ran for office before. So I think that's with these low turnout elections that, that how many people were engaged? Now, we know, we all know that you guys both, I know Ben, you live in Seminole Heights where Lynn Hertak is from, and, and you, Creative Flippings, are writing so much about the, the election. So we're kind of really into it. And, right. and But I, again, I don't know how many the voters are. Don't, don't want to discount how much the interest is because we know in some of these um, neighborhood associations, people are very into it. But overall, as large masses, not so much, right? Just so much. So when it's that small of a percentage of people voting, you know, you're going to think that somebody who's got a higher name recognition is going to have a better chance. Um, so that's why I was surprised. I think that speaks to, I mean, you alluded to it. Why do we have the elections when we have them? The interest is low. But also that kind of shows, especially combined with uh, the fact that you had to request a mail-in ballot, that the yeah. most Yes, we talked about that. Political yeah. um, people who are active in the elections are really pay attention to these. This is a city council race. By all accounts, this is boring stuff. It is. It is not like this big, hyper partisan, crazy stuff outside it, of the Casper well, it, race. Well, it, it, right. It's right? boring. It, I think as covering this, you know, for much of my career, no, I, don't, I don't mean I, boring. I just mean right. it's, it's really detailed well, and nuanced. No, right. You have to be really into it. I mean, I think it's actually the most rewarding thing there can be to cover local politics and local because it's where you have an influence on your community in a way that you certainly can't in Washington news at all, and barely in Tallahassee. But people know, and I know this doing this radio, doing radio programs on WMNF for two decades. By Back and forth, people. A lot of people follow what's on cable news, okay? And, and Trump, the Trump factor has made people care actually more about local stuff. I mean, the, the Moms for Liberty, I think, is a, is, is a part of that, where people, and coronavirus had something to do with that, too, where people, you know, more invested in paying attention to different things. But 
Um, locally, like I say, these are nonpartisan races, but they're so partisan, right? Um, they shouldn't be, but they are because it's really it's true. The whole idea in, in Tampa City Council, the most thing they talk about is land use meetings. I'm sorry, it really is. Uh, it's not nearly as more dynamic a city council as up St. Petersburg, I dare say, where they're in terms of certain issues. Um, but but anyway, so again, going back to the cruise her tack. It, it, it got ugly already. I suppose it might get, get more intense. Um, we talked about this with Hertak last week, uh, being accused of being a socialist. And we were saying, like, being accused of being homophobic. Yeah, that's the big one. That did seems, that, su- did yeah. that surprise you, Ray? What? What's, I mean, what how, did what surprise how, how me? How nasty that the Hertak I think those Mitch, you're, the, you're the political animal, so you've seen it. But I was kind of shocked to see some of the accusations. I'm a little bit kind of like. Recoiling here, getting ready for whatever's going to happen um, next in these next few weeks. So yeah, I think it was surprising. Um, I suppose it was disappointing. And, and to Mitch's point, you know, Janet Cruz probably should have performed better based on on name recognition. And I think sometimes when you get used to running on your name, thirteen years in, in, in Tallahassee is a long time. That's a long established record. Yeah, yeah. And it's it's so interesting how this is working out because I know that uh, in, in the in this race, uh, the progressives. You know, look, there's three. There's been considered three progressives on the city council: Goods, Carlson, and Hertak, and they're all been at odds with Castor, who again, you know, theoretically all Democrats. Jane used to be a Republican. Again, I don't think it really matters as much. It's more about the issues about development, housing, things like that. That are, I don't know. It's gotten weird on the council there for sure. But Janet Cruz uh, is definitely considered probably a little more uh, moderate than than when her tax. So. Um, you're seeing some of that appeal. And I, by the way, George the Hunted, uh, Veshev, how do you pronounce it? Veshev. Yeah, I saw him on Wednesday, right? And he, is, he got 10% of the vote. Uh, and so his votes, his, his voters matter in this race. And I asked him, I said, are you going to endorse? And he said he was going to talk, you know, he's a Republican, by the way, and again, partisanship matters here. Uh, and he says he's going to talk to his fellow Republicans. I don't know how many of them, but um, before he makes an endorsement, if he does at all, that's an important one. That I wonder if, if both candidates have reached out to him already. Um, I think that he is very, you know, conservative. He was talking to me about, it, so I don't know where he would land on that. But I think that um, I'm sure the Janet Cruz people would love to get well, his I mean, endorsement. If, if you're somebody who was a conservative who didn't want establishment politicians, and I think we know where he he would land. He's an interesting guy. He, he has is. a lot of he interesting things. And, I, and that was actually most shocking to me. Nothing against George, but that he did pull so much well, of, there, of that Well, there are other Republicans, you know, who are not an endangered species. I mean, there there are a number of Republicans in this city, uh, in Tampa here, and they got behind one of their own, so to speak. I mean, you had Blake Casper. I mean, again, that was a district race. So even though uh, that, by the way, that is a district that is more Republicans and Democrats in District did 4. Did you see what the Florida Democrats tweeted out that night? So the Florida Democrats on election night in Tampa, they said the message of tonight is that a Trump and DeSantis loving candidate cannot win in Tampa. That's a loss for Governor DeSantis and a message that rich radical Republicans can't buy their way into office in Tampa or to even a runoff. But something they left on the table was that the Democratic mayor that they were applauding in a tweet before that did endorse that actual Trump and DeSantis loving candidate. So it's like I'm living in a Dr. Jack, like, you know what I mean? I'm going crazy. 
Uh, so were you also District 1? By the way, I was watching one particular TV channel who could not pronounce Alan Quindenin's last name correctly. It is Quindenin. Um, but nevertheless, uh, Alan, so now Alan, who has lost previous elections, so this is exciting for him. And it's, it gets against Sonia Brookins. Uh, that's going to be a very interesting race. Again, two people, two um, uh, challenge, you know, n- uh, non-incumbent races there. We should mention also Charlie Miranda, who has been originally the city council way back in the 1970s, uh, almost won outright. He came so close to getting 50% plus one, but he did not. So he'll be running against Hoyt Prindle in the District 6. That is the um, West Tampa uh, area where Charlie's represented that in the past. He had been General Charlie, excuse me, Guido Menascalca, who has been representing West Tampa for eight years, uh, now is running uh, county, excuse me, citywide, and he is now going to be running against Robin Lockett, the community activist. The surprise there was that Mike Suarez, uh, who was the former city councilman um, for eight years and ran for mayor, and, you know, a lot of people thought highly of Mike, came in a very disappointing third place uh, with 21%. That surprised me a little bit. I think bit. he got going a little bit late, and then he had that tech story come out. Yeah, and that's you so. guys broke that story, yeah, about and, and about and Citro, too, right, about the, the taxes. Yeah, and I think Citro's, you know, the results are just a little bit more different, just because mm-hmm. he was council chair. He had been kind of wrapped up in some things with some exchanges on, on the dais there, and, and um, it was weird, but I was surprised to see him not to make the runoff. Yeah, so again, so we've got a couple of minutes left to go here. Um, I, I don't know if we want to say anything else about this. I wanted to mention if we have a couple of minutes here to talk about what's going on in Tallahassee. One of the things i write, written about it this week is this whole permitless carry slash constitutional carry, not open carry bill that is going on. And it's really fascinating here because – you know, DeSantis is considered to have like ultimate power. He's got super majorities in the House and Senate. He's in Iowa today. I mean, like, you know, let's all bow down to Ron in Tallahassee. And yet um, this whole these gun rights advocates want what they call open carry, which we're it's really weird. We are one of only three states that does not have open carry. This is like the gunshine state, right? A state that's very pro gun rights. And yet we are in with uh, Illinois and New York and there's parts of California uh, in Washington, D.C., who are the only states that have, like, no open carry, where you can openly carry a gun. The whole issue with permitless is where you have to get a permit or not to carry a concealed gun. This is going to probably happen, the permitless part. 25 states have this. 25 states don't right now. But you've got gun rights people who are very angry at the Republicans and saying, you guys have all the votes here. Why aren't you doing this? And DeSantis was quoted the other day as saying, well, yeah, if the legislature brings it to me. Wait a minute. If it brings it to you, do you want it, Ron? You know, he says, yeah, well, yeah, I do support it. But I don't think he really does. And so, you know, it's not going to happen. You know, and, it, and it's just funny. It's interesting politics. Somebody called him impotent yesterday uh, who was at, testifying in front of a committee. Uh, uh, so – but it's kind of like this with abortion, which we saw this come, a week, come out with a six-week abortion ban, a Republican proposal. And that's, that's radical, folks. Um, Fifteen weeks is pretty serious. We never had restrictions in the state before. That's still before the Florida Supreme Court. But six weeks is like a lot of women don't even know they're pregnant and you're calling about a six-week abortion ban. And that is radical. And Ron DeSantis has been quiet on that for months and months and months. And then here we go. The first day of the session, this bill drops at 11 a.m., and um, I think this is interesting, and I think I think I'm, I'm going to say it's not going to pass. Actually, I think that's going to be a bridge too far for uh, the state, which up until last year, uh, and people still say it has very robust privacy uh, parts of our in our constitution. It's not going to allow that to happen. Any thoughts? Permitless carry. Permitless carry. I'm not packing right now, guys, so you can feel safe. I mean, what's interesting is that if the public records uh, request about DeSantis's victory speech here in Tampa, they didn't want guns in there. Yeah. Okay. 
Yeah, you're right. Right. Exactly. On on election night. You know, uh, I'm just thinking back to that picture of him uh, after Hurricane Ian with the white boots on. I don't think he's a gun carrier. He does not look like a gun a guy who would, who would just be comfortable with a gun man? on his hip. I have. Yeah, you're comfortable not, with it, yeah. I grew up with guns. Uh-huh. Right? I'm not an owner right now. I'm not a gun guy. But uh, I'm not scared of them. Um, he does not look to me like a guy who's. So that's a good question. Has have there has there been video of the governor effectively no, shooting a pistol or even so going clay, crazy. shooting some clay? I, th- I think you're, Bob, you're, you guys are right. It's just I haven't not a seen. Hobby. I haven't it's seen not, that. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Hey, He's so folks, we just got about a minute to go. Want to let you know programming notes. So I will be away the next couple of weeks. Uh, ben and Ray and maybe some of our other colleagues at CL and or Axios will be here, and so uh, I'll be back in a couple of weeks on the 31st. We're going to have Rosemary Goudreau, uh, former editor editorial page writer for the um, Tampa Bay Tribune and the Sun Florida Sun Sentinel will be here with us as well. So that will be great. So we'll look forward to that. Um, and uh, I think that's about that's about all we've got to talk thanks about. Thanks for today. listening to the skinny. Yeah, on. thanks for your calls and thanks for being here with us. Mitch is going to let us drive the bus, Ben. Hey, next week, tune in. There we go with a little Tame Impala. Okay, folks, hey, any, any predictions for the Oscars? Do you guys care about this at all? Oh, I'm, I'm, I'm all in it for Banshees. I just don't want yeah. anybody to get slapped. Or Tar. Please, nobody gets slapped. <laughs> uh, but I think, unfortunately, the uh, the big movie is going to be one that I didn't really like. I don't want to talk about it. Okay. Uh, St. Patrick's Day. Right around the corner. <laughs> <laughs> all right. You have been listening to WMNF 88.5 FM. This is The Skitty. I'm Mitch Perry, the Florida Phoenix. Ray Rowe with Creative Loafing. Ben Montgomery with Axios Tampa Bay. We'll be back. They'll be back next week. I'll see you in a few weeks.